Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week, I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over. It's time to live. I saw so many times in the industry that just because somebody deserved the job or were really gifted didn't mean that they got it. We're only seeing what we think we need to do to get the result that we want to achieve the checklist, rather than really being open to the way life guides us. And so in those moments, all we want is certainty. You know, when we're in those moments of fear, certainty is often the way out. That's the mind's way out. The heart's way out is love, you know, is to to love ourselves through those moments. Here's the easiest way to be authentic. Be 100% present. What's up, everybody? This is Rob Murgatroyd, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. This episode features best-selling author, coach, and keynote speaker, Christine Hassler. You can find her on Instagram and elsewhere at Christine Hassler. So I wanted to have Christine on the show for one main reason. She has the ability to cut through bullshit and find the truth of what someone is really after faster than I've ever seen anybody do it. I saw it firsthand when she spoke at one of my mastermind weekends. So who is Christine? She is the author of the best-selling book, Expectation Hangover, Free Yourself from Your Past, Change Your Present, and Get What You Really Want. She left her successful job as a Hollywood agent to pursue a life that she can be passionate about. For over a decade, as a keynote speaker, retreat facilitator, spiritual psychologist, and life coach, as well as host of the top-rated podcast, Over It and On With It. In this conversation, we talk about everything from being a Hollywood agent, which includes side stories of a dinner with George Clooney, a date with Jerry Springer, but more importantly, we dug deep on very specific strategies that will allow you to have high intention, high involvement, and low attachment when it comes to achieving your goals. Be sure to take a screenshot of this episode, share it on the socials, and remember to tag me and at Christine Hassler and let us know what you think. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation I had with Christine. Christine, welcome to the show. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Rob. You are so welcome. You know, I have been wanting to have you on this show from the moment I had seen your magic in person at our mastermind. I've been around a lot of gifted and talented people, but you are at the top of that list. Oh, so th- wow. <laughs> so thank, thank you. Thank you. Way to set the bar really low for me at the beginning of the interview. <laughs> <laughs> I thought where we would start is I'd like to start with growing up in Texas, maybe just for some background, because sure. I'd like you to tell us maybe a story about something your parents did with you as a kid, which sort of typifies what your experience was like, say, from ages five to 10. Oh, gosh. Well, my parents grew up in Wisconsin. And so we moved to Dallas when I was barely two. And so we didn't have a lot of family. We didn't have any family in Dallas, actually. And so we were a very tight-knit family. It was my mom, my dad, my sister, and I. And Dallas is hot, 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 hot. (laughs) So the typical... Most of the time, we spent time outside. We had a pool in our backyard, which was such a blessing to have. And I just remember we had a five CD changer. And in the CD changer, it was Paul Simon's Graceland, Enya, Fine Young Cannibals, Fleetwood Mac, and I think Steve Winwood was the last one. And weekends, we're listening to those five albums on the compact disc changer that was such a big deal, swimming in the pool until my hair turned green. And my sister and I coming up with SeaWorld-like performances that we would then perform for our parents. I wanted to be somewhere in between a mermaid and a dolphin trainer. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, so random fun fact, do you know who Enya's sister is? No. You ready for this? I'm going to blow I'm your so mind. Ready. Laura Brannigan. Remember her? 
Oh, yes. What's her pop? Like, she was like, what was her major hit song? Who knows? But you know who I'm talking about. We'll, we'll have to have somebody write in and tell us. But that was some weird fun fact that I learned in some trivia night somewhere that I had to Google when I sobered up the next day to make sure that it was actually accurate. I, I think it was, was Gloria, her song. Like There you go. There you go. Oh, I love that song. Listen, I got to tell you, between uh, between the compact disc and Gloria uh, being the hit, <laughs> we're definitely dating ourselves. So we'll just move on to... Hey, uh, to- we're not talking about eight tracks. I never was alive when those were around. So there you go. <laughs> okay. Well, I happen to have grown up with eight tracks. I will be 52 this year. So wow. I remember them. They were like hockey pucks. They hit me right on the head. <laughs> 52 looks good on you. Oh, thank you. So let's talk a little bit about high school. What did you think you wanted to be when you grew up when you were in high school? Oh, God, all I did, all I wanted to do was grow up. I hated high school so much. I just wanted out of there as quickly as possible. So I was a massive overachiever to compensate for even more massive insecurity and feeling like I didn't belong. And I had fantasies about just being super successful. I think that there was some part of me that would dream about winning an Academy Award or some kind of public thing and having that all show you attitude towards all the people that tormented me in high school. So I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but I was always really fascinated with Hollywood. I was an actor as a kid. In fact, that was something that was such a wise decision for my parents when I was getting bullied and teased and really felt left out. My parents got me into acting classes and acting, I I really think saved my life because it gave me an outlet for expression. And so I thought that I didn't know that I'd be an actress, but I thought maybe I'd be a producer or something in Hollywood. I just put a, a lot of pressure on myself that I needed to be really, really successful. Would you recommend acting to kids today? Yes. Oh my, ap- absolutely. A- any, I recommend anything that is not just academic related. So maybe it's acting, maybe it's martial arts. I think sports are so good to learn about healthy competition, being on a team, taking advice from a coach, all those kinds of things. The only thing about acting, dance for girls, is sometimes it can come along with that pressure and expectation to look a certain way. And so that can often come with body image stuff. And I just think that if anyone is getting their children into any kind of performance arts, creating a healthy self-image has to be part of that as well. So that one doesn't get caught up in the looking good standards that a lot of those industries that can, can be affected by. Easy to do. Easy yeah. to do. You know, I, I was downtown Atlanta for some event. I live in Atlanta in Buckhead and I was downtown for some event and there was this uh, sort of like preteen, I don't know, I don't exactly know what it's called, but like cheering competition. And I was watching all of these girls that were like nine years old in makeup and like fake mm. hair extensions. It was really freaky to look oh, at. You know? Yeah. I, I think that there's so much pressure to grow up so quickly and to look like a woman when you're still a little girl. And uh, man, if I could just, I, I would want, if I saw those girls, I would just want to walk up to them and be like, no, 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 you don't understand. You have plenty of time to be grown up. Enjoy this. Take off the makeup. Be a little girl. Just enjoy this time. Because... Well, listen, the challenge is that the moms are driving yeah. the train, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that it's so important. And I, I you know, on my podcast, I have a lot of moms call because I coach people live on the air. And one thing that comes up a lot is is mom guilt. And one thing that I always say to moms is one of the best things you can do for your child is to have your own purpose. You know, they have mom guilt when they're working and they have their own thing. And I've seen thousands and thousands of people at this point. And I have to say, people that were raised with parents who were passionate and purposeful about something in their own life, not to the extent that they neglected their kids, but to the extent that their kids weren't their only focus, that that produces well-adjusted adults. Because when your child is your primary and only focus, like those kind of pageant moms can be, then you end up sort of living vicariously through the child. And how do you know that what the child doing is what the child wants versus what you want? You know, how like with that example that you gave, how many of those girls really wanted to do it for themselves versus it was something their mom wanted for them? So I just think it's so important as a parent to have your own purpose and passion so you don't project those onto your children. 
and you do it, you know, sort of consciously and unconsciously. It's, it's sort of like, I can see a lot of these moms, like you really want to do this, honey, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So I want to, I want to actually fast forward the clock a little bit from high school and move into your twenties as a Hollywood agent. You were representing TV writers, producers, directors, finding talent, booking talent, reading scripts, etc. Can you tell us the story of getting your first job where you wore your yellow suit and maybe <laughs> share the advice that your supposed mentor gave you? You did your research. <laughs> I moved out to I, 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 my overachiever pattern was really strong in college and I graduated from college early. And so I moved out to Hollywood when I, I wasn't even 21 yet. I think I was 20. Drove out there. My dad flew out to Chicago. I went to Northwestern, flew out to Chicago, drove with me. And I didn't have a place to live. I didn't have a job because I knew if I wanted to work in the entertainment industry, I had to just get out there and try to find something. So... I, I had no place to live, but I, in college, I had co-anchored a cable access wrestling show. Don't ask me how I got that job. And so I knew a lot of the guys on the wrestling team. And two of the guys that were a couple years older than me lived in UC, near UCLA in Westwood. And they're like, you can come live with us. So I pull up to this apartment and imagine two 22-year-old like, wrestlers. Imagine how that apartment smelled. I walk in and I'm just like, oh my God, it smells like dirty poison here. And I just knew I had to like hit the ground running and find a job. So I was, you know, doing resumes and calling different production companies. I didn't know exactly where I wanted to work, but the advice I was given is if you want to work in Hollywood, start at an agency. So I applied at the William Morris agency and I went in for the the interview with the HR person and they wanted me to start in the mailroom. And the mailroom, when you start in the mailroom, you dress up in a suit every day and you push a mail cart around for like a year. That's your job. And I really wanted to bypass that. So in the interview, I asked how many female assistants there were on desks. And you could tell from the facial expression of the human resources person that the answer was there was not a lot. And so they gave me a chance to be on a desk and skip the mailroom. So I get on my desk. I'm, I, I think I was working for the head of TV packaging and I'm super nervous. And there's three phone, three phones on the desk and they're ringing like crazy. And the current assistant is on like his fourth cup of coffee and is completely frazzled. And that's my training day. But in the training day, I have an opportunity to meet with my like agent mentor. You're paired up with an agent mentor. And so. I walk into my agent mentor meeting and he's on the phone walking around pacing, just kind of waves his hand at me to sit down, keeps me waiting for a while, finally hangs up the phone and is like, look, I don't have a lot of time, but let me give you some advice. In this industry, as a woman, you're either going to have to sleep your way to the top or become a total bitch and never wear yellow again. We're done. (laughs) (laughs) And I was just sitting there with my mouth open like, Oh my gosh, where is am everything I? Everything scripted in Hollywood is just everything. Like that's that that literally was like he had cue cards in front of him. I that was know. So it's like out it of a movie. Poignant. It's out of I mean, there might have been a couple more words, you know, I'm probably remembering it in the cliff note version, but that was that was the bottom line and those were the things that were said to me. And that was a day that I made a decision about working in Hollywood, you know, I was like, well, I don't want to, I'm not, I don't want to sleep my way to the top. Like that's not who I am. So I believed in that moment I had to develop an edge because I, I really believe what this man was telling me. And as a young woman in a very male dominated competitive field, I sort of did need a little bit of an edge because at that point I didn't know myself well enough to have boundaries and speak my truth and engage with men in a way that didn't require an edge. At at 20, barely 21 years old, that's the only thing I knew how to do to survive. All right. So now let's fast forward a bit more. Can you place us on the day that you decided to quit being a Hollywood agent and give up that seducing six-figure salary at 25 years old mm-hmm. and maybe maybe give us some color on what you overheard in the elevator when a woman got a text about her daughter's first words. Yeah. So I was already hating my job. I... Well, I was promoted really young. I was working. So I, I started as an assistant at William Morris. Then I went and did production. I worked at The Man Show. I worked at Paramount. And then I came back to a company called AMG and was a manager and then was a literary agent. And well, agent manager, we were 
technically managers, but we negotiated deals. So we were really agents. And I really thought once I got promoted that I'd like my job better. And I was consistently living in when-thens. When I make a certain money, then I'll feel happy. When I get promoted, then I'll like my job. When I have this boyfriend, then I'll feel confident. You know, I was never really happy in the present moment and always thought something outside of me would be the fix. So I finally have everything I quote unquote want and I still don't like it. And I realized that one, I don't like who I'm becoming. I don't like the edge that I've developed. Two, I really don't like sales. It's not my passion. It's not really what I excel at. And being an agent, you're selling all day. Three, I saw so many times in the industry that just because somebody deserved the job or were really gifted doesn't didn't mean that they got it. So just the way the industry worked at the time, I didn't really align with. And then I just saw the lifestyle of everybody around me and it wasn't really the lifestyle I wanted. Going back to the example you brought up, I was riding up in the elevator and one of the female partners at the firm got a text that her daughter said her first word. And the assistant who was riding up with her said, oh, that's so sweet. What was her first word? And she said, well, it was Ola because she spends a lot of time with the nanny. And I, I wasn't judging the woman in that moment. It was more, it more hit me of, wow, this could be my life in 10 years or 15 years or whatever. And it wasn't so much that the child's first word was Ola or whatever. It was almost like I could feel the woman's disappointment, like her own unhappiness with it. Like she just didn't seem happy. And I'm like, wait, I'm already unhappy and I'm I'm like fresh into this. And this is someone who's ahead of me and she doesn't seem so happy either. So maybe I better get off this train. And I got out of the elevator and walked around and there was all kinds of weird art in our office, especially in front of my office. There was this weird painting of this pregnant woman in a negligee and a garage sale gone awry with a UFO light shining down upon her and her looking up at this UFO. And that was what I looked at every day. And I kind of felt like the woman in that poster, like, what is going on with my life and get me out of here. And so I went down the elevator, walked around came back upstairs and called my dad because I really had been thinking about quitting for a while, but it just didn't seem like a possibility because I didn't know what else I was going to do. And also I had worked so hard to get to this point. I mean, I worked my tail off to get to the point that I was at and people would kill for the job that I had. And so sometimes when we're in those situations, Rob, we want to call someone who we think is going to give us permission. And so I called my dad because I thought maybe he'd give me permission. And I told him, dad, I'm thinking of quitting, yada, yada. And he said, this was such a good dad move. He said, you know, honey, I can't make this decision for you. I love you. And I think quickly after that, he hung up. I mean, he didn't hang hang up on me, but he just wasn't going to give... He wasn't going to tell me the answer. He knew that I needed to sort that out for myself. So I think I gave it a couple more days of thinking. And then um, two, three days later, I ended up resigning. That is some good daddying right there. And mm-hmm. I can take that. I got two girls, so I'm going to take that one. That was good. A couple of, couple of follow-up questions on your story. One of them is the man show. Mm. That the one with the girls jumping on the trampoline? Yeah, the juggy dancers. <laughs> what was that like to be around? I, was, <laughs> I mean, it was fun and terrible all at once. And I had a very full circle moment about six months ago, Adam Carolla had me on his podcast and it was him and Jimmy Kimmel that were the hosts of The Man Show. And uh, you know, if I could go back and tell my young 20-something self, like, don't worry, someday you'll be like on his podcast. <laughs> you, you won't be a PA for the rest of your life. That would have been good to know. But it was... I was a production assistant. I, I was running errands. I was... I don't even remember what I was doing, but it was a crazy, it was a crazy show. And people always, you know, if you're a girl, a young girl on set, people assume you're a juggy dancer. <laughs> I'd be like, I'm, no, I'm not. I'm not a dancer. I'm not jumping on the trampoline. I'm just bringing the craft services in just to PA. But it was, so it was humbling. You know, I, this was before I was an agent and um, it was, it was humbling. And it ha- makes me have a lot of respect for, I think Hollywood is one of those industries that is, can it can be very challenging to work your way up in and there is a lot there are a lot of people that pay their dues for a really long time and then there are a lot of people who work production for these shows that we watch that they work long hours they don't have glamorous jobs and they're they're like often the hardest workers on the show so it gave me a lot of respect for 
the way the industry works. And it kind of deglamorized it a little bit for me as well. You know, what's, what's interesting, and we'll get into this later when we talk about your work, but what's interesting is if you had that conversation with Corolla at the time that, you know, someday I'm going to be on your podcast, you both would have looked at each other and said, what the hell's a podcast? Exactly. <laughs> do, you, do you know what I mean? So, you know, high intention, low attachment. So we're, we're going to talk about what that means in a bit. But I want to talk about living by a checklist, which was sort of how you were living your life back at that time. How does living by a checklist negate vulnerability? Oh, good question. Well, let's talk about what living by checklist means. I think throughout our life, we come up with beliefs about what we think will make us happy, what we think will make other people proud of us, what we think will make us feel safe and secure, what we think will validate us or have other people validate us, what we think will please other people, all those, what will make us feel in control, you know, and, and less uncertain. So, from all of those desires, we construct a checklist of what we think will accomplish those things. And from my perspective, when we live life that way, we're very much having tunnel vision. You know, we're only seeing what we want. We're only seeing what we think we need to do to get the result that we want to achieve the checklist rather than really being open to the way life guides us. And vulnerability isn't just about me sharing something personal from my past or being being open with my emotions. Vulnerability is also about surrenders. It's not just about vulnerability with other people. It's also vulnerability to the universe to really show us, you know, what it, how do you want to use me? What is the best best path for me? And when we're so focused on our checklist, we're so focused on saying safe and secure and, and in control, then of course we're not going to be vulnerable to really open up and to really to surrender to what could even be better out there for us. I also think that tunnel vision and that staying in control and wanting to achieve things and living life by a checklist, it numbs us from our emotions and it numbs us from our intuition a lot. And we're so, again, focused that sometimes we miss slowing down and we miss those beautiful moments where we can connect with another human being and be vulnerable. So I think it just keeps us in a more mind-based, system-based, robotic mode. And that moves us more and more away from from vulnerability. How do you think we wind up there? Do you think we wind up there because we're addicted to the certainty? Well, I, I think it's a couple reasons. I think that, yeah, I think we're definitely addicted to control. But the main reason that we're addicted to control is because we've had moments in our life where we got really, really scared and we felt really out of control, be it when your parents fought or someone left or someone died or you got abused or you got teased. I mean, there's so many examples from our lives we can look at it in, in that moment where we felt fear, in that moment when we fell out of control, in that moment when we had what I like to call an expectation hangover, an unexpected thing happened that we didn't desire and that wasn't pleasurable. And so in those moments, all we want is certainty. You know, when we're in those moments of fear, Certainty is often the way out. That's the mind's way out. The heart's way out is love, you know, is to, to love ourselves through those moments. But a lot of us don't have that available to us, you know, in, in scary moments. Oftentimes there isn't somebody there saying, it's okay. There's nothing wrong with you. You're safe. You didn't do anything wrong. It's not your fault. You're lovable. Like that's, that, that voice is usually not present during our most traumatic times. And so from that, we want control. We want certainty. And we look back on our life in those moments where we were vulnerable and our heart was open and we're like, oh, wow, like that didn't work out so well for me. I got hurt. So I better close my heart and not be vulnerable and achieve this checklist so I don't get hurt again. So we, it's almost like we think we were protecting ourselves from something. So, you know, having a conversation like this, it all, it all makes sense. But then when you get into real life and the shit hits the fan and, you know, we just, we go on to our automatic behavioral patterns how do you how do you interrupt the pattern and connect you know that mind and heart together mm -hmm. so that one isn't leading over the other right well this is why we're at expectation hangover because it's not a quick fix it's not a do this mantra or eat this particular supplement or write write in this particular journal i mean it really is a process because you know as humans i know everybody thinks we're here to like 
have this amazing career and get married and do all these external things. But really, why we're on the planet is to evolve in our consciousness. And as human beings, we learn through contrast. That is how we learn. That is how we evolve. That is how we grow. I mean, just think back to the most challenging moments of your life. They probably were also the most transformational moments of your life if you were willing to look at them as learning opportunities and not be a victim and not uh, just kind of brush them under the rug. So I think that the how that you're asking, because that's you know, a super important question is how do we break the patterns is first awareness, awareness of the the truth that in between, and this is, I'm taking this from Viktor Frankl who wrote Man's Search for Meaning, in between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space, we have a choice. And in that choice is our freedom. So awareness is the first step that we, we need to have in terms of really healing and growing and evolving in consciousness is that whenever something happens to us, there's what happens and, and then there's what we make it mean and how we, re- we react. We can't always control what happens, but we do have discernment over what we make it mean and how we react. And that that's where the growth is. That's where the change happens. You can't control everything outside of you. So if you think you can, let me just bust that bubble right now. We don't have 100% control over our lives, but we do have 100% control over how we react and what we choose to make it mean. Now, that said, we have these neural nets in our brain that form that often dictate how we react to something. For example, let's use my example of being bullied as a kid. When that first happened, inside of my brain was, I did something wrong, I'm unlikable, and I took it personally, right? So I had a neural net form around taking any external judgment personally. So therefore, whenever it would happen again, whenever I felt judged or teased or someone didn't like me or a boy rejected me or whatever, it sort of went, that neural net fired up again. And so I had a groove in my brain around taking things personally whenever I felt judged or ostracized or not belonged or whatever. And so my default pattern, whenever that would happen, would go into feeling rejected and taking it personally and making it mean that I did something wrong. Now with awareness and with personal growth, I was aware that my brain would kind of default to that. And so part of my work was to interrupt that pattern, to forgive myself for believing that I was wrong, I was rejected, to work on not taking it personally, to not make it mean what I had meant in the past, and to choose a different response. So I wanted to break that down because I think a lot of people hear, well, you can control your reactions and your thoughts and your behaviors. You can, but not immediately sometimes. First, you kind of have to go back and look at what your default reflex programming is and work to unravel that, and then you can choose a different response. Did that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. What is the what's the best method or process to have the introspection? Because when you're in the moment, you're in the moment. Right. Like, you know, the bullets are flying and you're just ducking, right? You're trying to deal with it. But how do you train this practice into you so that you're different a year later? Is it, you know, something where you sort of like review the day at the end of the day and meditate on it and think about how you reacted? two things and how you can change things? Or is it just having the awareness that this is an issue that you need to work with in your life and that awareness will eventually evolve over time? Well, I don't think there's one answer to that question because it's going to work with different people in different ways and we're constantly growing and evolving. One thing that I recommend, and this is an expectation hangover, is an observation journal, kind of like what you were saying before, to really write down throughout the day what happened in your responses and be a scientist with yourself. Don't judge yourself and look for any patterns or patterns of reaction, patterns of thoughts, and that will start to illuminate some of the patterns in the belief systems. And it's really looking at your own operating system because as human beings, we all have this operating system inside us. And until we get aware of what our operating system is, it's, it's rather challenging to change it. The other thing is, I'm a, I, I am a spiritual psychologist. And so the way I look at psychology and just human development is that all of us have our our life's curriculum and our life's curriculum are the circumstances, the people, the things that happen or don't happen to us in our life that trigger us to grow. 
So often our soul's curriculum involves some painful experiences because those are often the experiences that wake us up. Like for me, again, going back to, I think examples are helpful. Going back to my example of getting, you know, feeling rejected and taking that personally. So that was one of my soul assignments was to go through an experience where I went into believing there was something wrong with me. People didn't like me taking it personally, have a pattern of rejection. And part of my evolution has been to work through that and heal that. So from the spiritual psychology perspective, I started attracting unconsciously lots of experiences in my life where I felt that similar feeling or had that similar experience until I started to heal it and look at it differently. So one of the ways that you can heal and deal with circumstances that are happening in your life and consequently change them is to look at how what's happening now that is disappointing in some way or upsetting in some way, what does it remind you of? Because whatever we're dealing with in the here and now, it's usually not the first time we felt the way we're feeling. Any expectation hangover we have is giving us an opportunity to go back and heal something from our past. So we don't just want to think about what's happening right now. We want to think about what does this remind me of? When have I felt this way in the past? Why am I drawing this experience into my life to help me heal and clear something from my past? So the observer hat is good to put on, like tracking awareness and patterns in your present day. But then also your own like inner psychologist or inner spiritual psychologist, that's helpful to do too, to go back and look at the events that whatever is upsetting to you in the present moment, what those are tied to. Got it. To get a bit woo-woo, mm-hmm. which I know is cool with you. Yes. <laughs> if, if our goal is to evolve so that... If our goal is to evolve and we learn through our contrast and our past is baked into that, how much of a role do you think things like past life have in sort of what we're overcoming Mm -hmm. in this current life, if anything? Well, I don't know 1000% because I'm not an enlightened master, (laughs) far from it. However, I've been in a lot of environments and schools, spiritual uh, gatherings, my own work, where things that uh, things would be hard to explain if they weren't past life. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is, yes, I do believe in past life karma, um, and not from this. Not, and, and I don't look at past life as oh, like you know, in my last life I was like Cleopatra. It's, it's not like who were you in your past life. It's more about what if your soul. Okay, so if if your soul is something that's constant, it never it never truly dies. And the the not that souls have goals, but the desire or the impulse or the entelechy of the soul is to become the most enlightened it possibly can. The only dimension that we know of so far where a soul can come in and experience contrast and heal and evolve and grow is through the human experience. So imagine that a soul has to have many different human experiences to get all the way to enlightenment. If enlightenment is the end is the end destination. Whatever enlightenment means, I don't I don't know where souls go after they evolve. I don't think any of us will ever know that 100%. So through our through each lifetime, the soul is evolving and growing and having different experiences. So whatever you sort of didn't complete in your last lifetime, you come into this lifetime and work to complete it in this lifetime. And if you don't, then you have another and another and another. That's how past lives have made sense to me. That's how they've been explained to me. And in my own personal work, that's how I've worked with it. I love it. You know, you mentioned enlightened master. I heard something great the other day. It was a quote and said, if you think you're an enlightened master, spend a week with your family. I know. Yeah. It's Ram Dass said that. <laughs> Is he the one who said that? Yeah. That's the first time I heard that. Yeah, that's exactly right. He, he was the one that said it. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about You've mentioned the difference between being authentic rather than strategic. Can you explain what you mean by that and how people should think about that? Yes, I love this. This is one of my favorite things I've ever wrote about. So many of us, we're strategic in how we communicate, how we show up in the world. And strategic means, okay, what do I need to do to be liked? Um, What do I need to do to not upset people? 
What do I need to do to have this result happen? And so a lot of times when we show up in our communication, we're in people pleasing, we're in really not listening because we're just anticipating what we think the person wants us to say. We're feeling judged or we're worried about how we're being perceived. And so we're manipulating everything from the way we look to how we act to get a certain result. Whereas if we're just authentic, we can just take a breath and we can just be ourselves and we can show up and not be attached to any goal or any result from any interaction and also not care about pleasing the other person, getting something from them, or be concerned about what they think. Because anytime we go into people pleasing or wanting a result or worried about what people think, then we're more in strategic communication and we show up more strategically. Whereas if we let all that go and we focus more on our intention, our intention to connect, our intention to understand, our intention to see and be seen, our intention to be vulnerable, our intention to communicate with truth and honesty, our intention to to be to show up in love and with an open heart, then we can just be authentic. And it makes communication so much easier. I think people think that being strategic makes things easier. But honestly, showing up as your full authentic self makes things easier because then you're then you're tapped into your intuition. Then you're tapped into your inner knowing. And the the words that come out of your mouth and how you show up is gonna is gonna resonate far more powerfully than if you're in your head trying to be strategic. That's so true. Why is that so hard for us? Well it goes back to the certainty thing. It goes back to there's a you know, I want to be validated. I want to be liked. I want to be um, Um, I don't want to upset people. I want this end result. You know, as humans, Rob, we we operate so much from our pain (laughs) rather than the truth of who we are. And that's why I love my job. And that's why I'm so committed to what I do because I just see people living their life operating from their pain. And what I mean by that is they're they're making decisions that that focus on safety and security and certainty and people-pleasing and all those kinds of things. And they're denying their their own desires. They're, they're not being authentic because they're, they're terrified to. And so that's why I think this, we're so lucky to live in a time where personal growth and development and, and we have so many tools so that we don't have to live in fear, you know, and so we don't have to show up so strategically. And, and a, another big reason that we don't show up authentically is because a lot of people, they don't even know who they are. They've become a version of themselves based on what they were told they needed to be or thought they needed to be. And I ask people a lot, you know, who are you? And they answer, I'm a, I'm a father, I'm a banker, I'm a this, I'm a that. They answer by their roles and identities rather than like really being able to answer who they truly are, you know, the qualities that that make them make them shine. And and very few people, when I ask them the question, who are you? say to say what i think is the most accurate answer which is i am love you know i am light i'm a spiritual being having a human experience that's who we all are at our core but most of us have forgotten that and so the process of self love and self discovery isn't really a learning process it's more of a remembering process you know who you are isn't something you need to discover it's more who you need to remember and we remember by removing the hurts and the layers and the limiting beliefs and all the things we've been told and all the checklists that's that's how we just, just rediscover and remember who we are Making me think of um, when I went to a Tony Robbins seminar once, he said, "If you, you the way that you can be authentic, it's what you're doing when you're not trying to act in any way. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. It's just when you're just being... You're be, here's, the, here's the easiest way to be authentic. Be 100% present. If you are 100% present, you're going to be authentic because judgment and anxiety and... Uh, all those things, they only happen when we're not in the moment. But if you're in a moment and you're listening and you're connecting and you're breathing and you're present and you're not time traveling to your past or the future, then it's so much easier to be authentic. It comes quite naturally. Somehow I, somehow I think we, if I, I guess I'm speaking for myself, but somehow I feel like if we're so present-minded then we're not going to accomplish our goals because we're not looking at the future. And I, I know I know that's a faulty way to think, but I was wondering what your thoughts are on that. My thoughts are in the present moment, that's when a very clear vision for the future can open. There's a difference between thinking about the future and 
coming up with goals that we think will make us happy, coming up with goals from the mind versus being in the present moment and having a clear vision drop in. From my point of view, mm-hmm. I'd rather have, have it that way. That's, I don't do goals. I don't whiteboard. <laughs> I don't do like, what are the things I want to accomplish in the next year? I meditate and I listen and I wait for something to drop in. And then I respond to that. Now, does that mean I'm in the present moment all the time? Hell no. My gosh, I got a monkey mind. My mind skips to the future, all that kind of stuff. However, I have learned that for me in my life path, things work a lot better. Things flow better when I don't come up with all these goals from my mind. But when I'm still and in the present moment and guided by my intuition, guided by spirit, because I have a pretty strong relationship with spirit and and I use the word God. And those those ideas, those directions, those impulses that give me the vision that I know that's going to be the highest use of me. And whatever is the highest use of me is for the highest good. So I've let go of a lot of my checklist and goals and planning. And that requires a certain level of surrender too, because the mind will come in and say, oh, well, if you don't have goals, if you don't have a plan, how are you going to accomplish things? And we look at our external world and people with goals and their checklists and their plans, they're very successful and that's very rewarded and that's very celebrated. But I always look at it and wonder, okay, well, where are the, where are the goals coming from? Are they from, are they from the mind? Like what if that person stopped planning for a moment and dropped in and really, really listened? Would a different vision reveal itself? This is so good. So dropped in for you, just to just to put a finer, just to highlight that, that means getting the revelation or the download from the spirit. Yeah, just really being in the present moment and whether it's spirit or just my own inner knowing, like who knows where exactly it's coming from. But it feels true. I remember Robert Holden once said to me, he's an amazing spiritual teacher, author. And he said, you know, we know something's true if it's the first time we're thinking it or hearing it or imagining it, but it, it, we already know it's true, right? Like I know your name is Rob because I already know that's your name, right? That That's truth based on like factual evidence. But there's another truth that's based just on feeling. Like it's it's something new, it's something we haven't ever heard or thought of, but yet we know it's true. Does that distinction make sense? It does. And perhaps if I lied about my name, but you felt like you knew my name was Rob, but if I lied yes. about it, you'd be like something inside of you going like, hey, I know it's true, yeah. but I don't know. Something's true. off. Yeah. Yeah. Is that what yeah. you mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it, it's it's almost like if anything I've said to anyone listening so far. It's the first time you're hearing this kind of concept and your mind is like, oh, oh, trying to figure it out. But inside of you, you feel something. You feel like, yes, like I got to listen to that. Or yes, like there's something about that. That's what I mean. There's like a resonance to to truth that happens. And mm-hmm. it's so important for us to be aware of that and to let that be a compass. I think we live in a very, very, very fast-paced world. And a lot of times we say yes to something or no to something or begin something without really checking in (laughs) and going, hmm, like how does this feel? Because something can look really good and our mind can convince us that it's really good. But if we don't check into our intuition and our body and our feelings, we're missing a massive, massive, massive part of our inner guidance system. That's why it's there. Yeah, exactly. Right? So true. Okay. So, you know, a, lo- a lot of us are so hard on ourselves, but we use being hard on ourselves as a strategy to motivate ourselves. Can you walk us through or maybe sort of explain a, some, some ways that we can not do that? Or, or why that's an why that's a flawed strategy? Yeah, well, and the reason why so many of us do it is because it's a flawed yet very effective strategy. Being hard on ourselves gets us to do stuff. It does. It works. It's effective, and that's why so many people have a hard time not being so hard on themselves because it's working. It's getting things done, but it's it's like putting like low grade gasoline in your Ferrari. It would it would it would go, but it's going to wear down the engine, and that's the same thing that happens to us when we are super hard on ourselves. Like I, I see so many successful, ambitious people 
living this sort of great life from the outside, but internally they are so judgmental and so hard on themselves. And they're afraid that if they stop being so hard on themselves, they'll stop doing things. And nothing can be further from the truth. You actually have more inspiration and you can get more done in less time when you're in a more self-loving space and you aren't putting so much pressure on yourself. You know, I'm, I'm sort of like living that now. I've nursing a fractured foot and just coming back from traveling and just in a time where I'm needing more rest and pushing myself hard is just not a good idea. And I know that to be true. And I really just trusted that taking care of myself is and not pushing myself is not only the best thing I can do for me, it's an act of self-love, but it also keeps me in integrity in my business because I'm all about self-love and taking care of ourselves. So if I was pushing myself during a time when I really need my own attention and self-love, I would be out of integrity. And you know what's so interesting is that in the past two weeks that I've been in this like really nurturing, kind of cocooning, just taking care of myself phase, I had three keynotes come in that are on staying. One of my keynote topics is staying sane in a hyperactive, competitive, driven world. (laughs) And three of them came in. And so I just share that story because I think sometimes we, we think that being hard on ourselves and working really hard is the only way to quote unquote, make things happen. There is another way and it's much easier. And it's about putting yourself first, doing the internal work. Now, I'm not saying I could just sit around for the next year in my self-love bubble and expect my business to just keep churning along. Of course, there's going to be a moment and I'm already feeling it where I'm inspired to take more action. And But that doesn't mean I then have to be hard on myself again. So oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, well, what, what will likely happen, I would suppose, is that once you get that message that things need to change and you're present and you acknowledge the message, then you just exactly. change them. Exactly. And, you know, uh, not being hard on ourselves is a constant practice. And so when you notice yourself being hard on yourself, you just say, I forgive myself. I forgive myself for being so hard on myself. And I take a breath. And, you know, I, I often say to myself, would I ever talk to a friend like I'm talking to myself right now? That's another question I ask myself a lot. Would I ever talk to a friend like I'm talking to myself right now? And the more we can catch those moments, again, that's another neural net the inner critic, the inner judge, the neural net in our brain. And so we we need that pattern interrupt. And one more thing I'll say about this. It's not about going from beating yourself up and going, oh, like, you know, I'm, I'm worthless. I'm not making any money. That wasn't good enough to, I'm amazing. I'm the most incredible person in the world. Like that's too big of a pendulum swing. You don't want to go that far. It's more from going, that sucked. I wish I could do that over. Why do I say stupid things? Two, I did the best I could. I can learn from this experience. And the next time I'm going to do even better. And in this moment, I acknowledge myself. It's those kind of steps so that it's actually believable. You don't, you don't go from being a critic to this massive cheerleader. You go from being a critic to more of a coach to yourself. Yeah, because your brain will go, bullshit, I don't believe you. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about your uh, your book, Expectation Hangover. You've said that uh, people's greatest suffering happens when their reality doesn't match their expectation. And you know, personally, as I'm reading your book, you know, I, I literally felt like there was a picture of me on every page. You know, I, I find myself <laughs> willing things to happen, and if they don't happen, I get pissed about it. How should I approach releasing the expectation of the goal? In other words, say this is what I'm after. And if it doesn't happen, it's okay. Talk to me about that a little bit. Yeah. So it's really about high intention and involvement and low attachment. Because whenever, and you probably know this, Rob, whenever we're pursuing any goal, we're not pursuing the thing. We're pursuing the feeling we think the thing will give us. It's never about the result. And what's so awesome is that whatever result we want, we can have that feeling right here, right now in the present moment. So it's in the pursuit of any goal, like let's say that you want to write a book and the feeling you think you're going to get from that is a sense of accomplishment, a sense of feeling like you're making a difference, creativity, whatever it may be. And so even in the process of writing that, you make sure that you're feeling those feelings of, of what you think the end result will be. So even if the book isn't a massive bestseller, even if it doesn't get put up by a publisher, you're already feeling 
the result, the feeling, the feeling that you wanted to feel from the desired result. And as long as we're feeling it in the process, then we don't get attached to the end result. And really disappointment over only comes from when we get attached to an end result. Now, that said, we're still human. So there are going to be things in our life, like if you did... Let's use the book example. You write a book and you put it out there and it flops. All right. That's going to sting a little bit. (laughs) There's going to be disappointment. You're going to have a bit of an expectation hangover. So you deal with it through the processes I teach in the book. You have your emotions about it. You rewire it. You look for the lessons, all that kind of stuff. But you don't make it mean that you're a failure. You don't make it mean that you shouldn't have done it. You, you, it's, the the major suffering, again, we're back to what we make something mean. So as long as we pursue our goals with that high intention and involvement and a low attachment, if we do get disappointed, we let ourselves feel it, but we don't indulge in it. We get to the learning super fast. We get back to whatever that feeling was that we wanted from the desired result. And then we move on to the next thing that we want to experience. So yes, have goals. Yes, pursue those things, but do it with that high intention and involvement. Give it your all, but don't make your emotional okayness, your worthiness, your enoughness dependent upon it. You know, if you write a book and it doesn't do well, it doesn't mean you're not enough. It doesn't mean you're not a failure. It doesn't mean anything like that. Most of the time, everything we're doing is for ourselves anyway. You know, even with my first book, my coach told me, if no one reads this, it doesn't matter. You're writing this book for you anyway. It's so easy to make that mistake, but you you put it so beautifully. You know, you mentioned earlier about goals and you said you don't have a five-year plan. How do you look at goals personally in your life? Do Do you just wait to see when things drop in and act on them or do you have any practice at all? This year, I want to work on this or how do you approach it? A lot of it. So, so much of my teaching comes from whatever's happening in my life. And so what I approach, how I approach my work and my creativity and all of that is one, what am I I learning and getting to the other side of it that I then can teach and that I can share because I have found that whatever I'm going through and learning, a lot of other people seem to be going through and learning as well. So that's part of it. And then the other part of it is is just kind of feeling into what's needed. Like what are the problems out there? And, And I'm definitely, you know, I interact with a lot of people. I speak at a lot of events. I teach retreats. I host the podcast. And so I'm I'm hearing a lot of what people are struggling with and what they're they're suffering from. And so I look for trends, I look for patterns, I look for themes and and I go, how can I create content? How can I support? Because I've been grateful and blessed to go through a lot of challenging life experiences, but also have an incredible support team. I've had incredible teachers, incredible spiritual teachers, incredible coaches, incredible workshops and training that I've done. And so I just look at how can I serve? You know, what, what's, where are people suffering and how can my gifts, my tools, my experience serve them? And, and that's where I take action from. So there's no written down 2018 goals on January 1. Um, no, I write down more my intentions and how I want to feel. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> I know. It's crazy. It's so like no, anti-life no, like like coach. <laughs> it is anti-life coach, but listen, most things in life I've learned are counterintuitive. Yeah. Um, so I, I love that. I want to talk a bit about your podcast. It's called Over It and On With It. And each week you coach someone live on the air. I got to tell you, that takes balls. Why did you choose that format? <laughs> oh, goodness. Growing up, I always listened to Dr. Laura. My mom oh, loved God, Dr. I Laura. I remember her. Yeah. Um, and I, I loved call and advice talk shows. And so I was like, oh, I want to have a call and advice talk show someday. So that was one of them reasons. And then the other reason was after 10 years of facilitating workshops and live events, and having people be coached on stage or in front of a group and seeing how helpful that was to other people. Also, when I got my master's in spiritual psychology from a place called the University of Santa Monica, there was always open sharing. Like people would stand up and be coached in the audience. And I would always learn so much from other people sharing because when it's someone else is sharing, our own defenses are down. And often we can get an aha moment from someone else, even better than from ourselves because our defenses are down. And I just saw how much people were learning from, from seeing someone be coached. And, and, and I feel like we can sit on this podcast and talk about concepts, but like if you heard me take someone through 
what I was just explaining, it would make so much more sense. And so I just really wanted to be able to teach that way. And I was scared to death. Like no one out there was doing it. I wanted to do it totally raw. So I don't know the people at all. I have no background. And I was like, is this going to work? Am I going to be able to create transformation in 20 minutes? Are people going to be vulnerable? Or is it going to be like silly questions? And Rob has blown me away. Like the vulnerability on that show and the, the things we've talked about, everything from career questions to sexual abuse to breakups to bo- body image stuff. I mean, it's just been, it's just been awesome. And that's that thing about... It was a vision. It was an impulse. It wasn't ever a goal. It was something that I kept seeing and I kept feeling. And I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know like the technology part of it. Like I just saw it and felt it so clearly that I just had to take action. Do you have any rituals around what you do before you either get up in front of a room and work with somebody or before you get on a podcast and work with somebody? Before I get on the podcast, I just do a pretty just a quick centering process and a a little prayer and just ask to be used as a channel for the highest good. And I bless the technology (laughs) aspect of it. And then um, before I get up on stage, I always go to the bathroom right before like they want to bring me on. And I just use that time to just ground myself and ask to be cleared and just ask to again be used as an instrument. My 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 rituals are really about getting out of my own way. A lot of people have those like pump up rituals, like listen to a song and pump pump up, but that's not my way. My way is to get out of the way as much as I possibly can and you know as a keynote speaker I don't use PowerPoint. I don't use notes. I just use a handheld microphone. Um, my speaking mentor, her name is Connie Podesta. She three years ago was like, you need to get off PowerPoint. You're not, you're not totally being authentic. Like you're a coach, you're, you can channel, like just get out there and just let it happen. Like have no training wheels, take them off. And I did. And so that's my ritual. It's like, how empty can I get before I get on stage? When you're working with somebody, this is interesting. When I was watching you in the masterminds work with each of us individually, I was wondering, is she, has she just done this for so long that there are just patterns that keep reproducing and she's, she's getting that, you know, I've seen this pattern 20,000 times, or is it pure intuition or is it a percentage of each. <laughs> it's a percentage of each. What the percentage is, I don't know. Um, but definitely okay. a, a percentage of each. You know, there's certain things that I see over and over again just show up in different ways. But then there's things that, you know, as soon as someone starts talking um, or I see them or, you know, make a connection, there's something specific I get for them. So it definitely is a combination. All right. So I want to ask you two other questions before we move into a brief play hard round. And that is to ask you how you accidentally wound up on a date with Jerry Springer. (laughs) Yes. So I was in college and I was studying TV and film and I was interning at the Jerry Springer show. I really wanted the Oprah Winfrey show, but I got Jerry Springer. And I was there for a while and I was digging through the wardrobe closet one day and I feel this tap on my shoulder and it's him. At that time, you know, I'd been on the show for a while. I was not not too impressed with the show. And he started making small talk with me. And he knew I worked for the football team and the wrestling team and that I really like sports. And he said, oh, well, I have courtside tickets to the Bulls game. It's the playoffs. You should go sometime. I thought he was offering me tickets. So I was like, oh my God, that would be amazing. I would love that. Oh my gosh. Yes, yes, yes. He's like, well, come up to my office and we'll sort it out. So I get up there and soon I realized that he wasn't offering me tickets like for me and a friend. (laughs) He was offering to take me to the game. And once that became clear, I had this moment inside of me of like, "Mm, like, do I pass up Bulls game courtside? His seats are close to Oprah's (laughs) like, and I just was like, okay, great. What time should I meet you? (laughs) Because I was not going to pass up courtside Bulls tickets. So that's how I accidentally ended up on a date. Well, what was the date like? He's a very nice man. It was a little strange. I was, you know, 20 years old. I think he did want it to be a date. I didn't want it to be a date. I even said out loud that he was older than my dad. And so <laughs> no, I did. Didn't. I was you're 20 years old. Like, you know, like what am I gonna say? I wasn't I wasn't so eloquent at the time. So yeah. <laughs> 
All right. One more, one more celebrity one. How did you wind up spending New Year's Eve with uh, George Clooney? And what's he like? He's awesome. He's such a great guy. I was dating the head of a movie studio at the time and um, they were friends. And so we got invited to a New Year's celebration with him and some other famous people. It was pretty cool. All right. Let's talk a little bit about play hard, right? We work hard. You kind of are you really are a play harder for sure, you know, and play hard is really anything that I define outside. I define play hard as anything outside of work that creates fulfillment. And you do a lot of stuff in this category, like aerobatic <laughs> flying, uh, where you spin around and you hit a couple of G forces or sipping champagne in Paris or rock climbing on a 50 foot wall or chilling in Bali. I mean, you really, really fall into this lifestyle. So if you had a magic wand and you were to describe what play hard looks like for you, how would you describe it? Saying yes to the unexpected invitations that come my way that scare me just a little bit. What's the one thing rocking your world now that has nothing to do with work? Rocking it in a good way? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Honestly, it's been this period of not having a quote unquote home. All my stuff is in storage and I've been floating around the world and in different places. And literally that's been rocking my world. And it's been giving me the experience of finding home within and realizing how little I truly need in terms of stuff. What's the longest vacation you've ever taken? Oh gosh, it's hard to say because I've been an entrepreneur for so long that I take vacations all the time, but I'm I'm usually still like tapped into work, which still feels like a vacation. Probably my honeymoon. I was married. I'm not married anymore, but probably my honeymoon, which was two weeks. If you had all the time and the money in the world to pursue a hobby or a recreational activity, what would it be and why? I would learn how to fly a plane because uh, I love flying. Mm-hmm. I've always wanted to learn. What's the one thing that you've um, always wanted to do other than flying a plane but haven't gotten to yet? Uh, Having a family. You know, um, relationships can be challenging Mm -hmm. and maybe even go on the back burner while you're building a business. What struggles would you say that you've had in this area and how have you overcome them? Well, I've been pretty... Pretty good. I've had really good coaching on not putting my relationships on the back burner because they're they're so important. I think that the the challenge for me has been I travel so much. And so maintaining my friendships when I'm on the road, using things like Boxer, calling people, um, thinking about friends I haven't talked to in a while, driving up to LA to see people, like really being intentional about keeping relationships going, even if I'm not geographically in the same place all the time. That's been my biggest challenge. Do you live in LA? <laughs> no, I currently I'm in North County, San Diego, but I've been in LA. I've been in Australia. I've been in Austin. I've, I'm traveling so much right now. So I, my, all my stuff is in storage. I don't really have a current home. Where, where do you want to live when you get a current home? That's the thing. I don't know yet. I'm thinking North County, San Diego as a place to ground, but mm-hmm. I've really accepted that I'm somebody who, you know, I, I, I honestly think that I might live part-time in Australia, which is completely surprising me, but I just, it, that feels more like home to me. Is North County uh, like La Jolla? No, North County is like Encinitas, Del Mar, Solana mm. Beach. I love that area. It's yeah. really incredible. Yeah. So if I could um, split my time between here and Bondi Beach and Byron Bay, Australia, I'd be like super happy. <laughs> do you like uh, do you like Antonitas over LA? It's different. Mm. It's so different. It's like, do you like chocolate or french fries better? It's like, oh, they're both good, mm-hmm. um, but for different reasons. Okay. We're going to talk more about that because we're relocating to LA or Encinitas. Oh, (laughs) okay. The great thing about living in Encinitas is you can get to LA when you want it. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like LA, well, we'll talk in terms of what you're looking for. We'll talk. All right. So we're going to hit our rapid fire rounds. Answer these as quickly or as slowly as you like. It's basically a first thing that comes to your mind. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? Intuition. What's one of the things you're afraid of right now? Losing something, someone I really love. Um, are there any particular books that you have reread? Or which one have you reread the most? I don't really reread books. People think I'm a super big reader. I'm actually not. I have reread The Power of Now because it was my first spiritual growth book. So I reread it because I understood it a lot better after I had actually done some work. 
Got it. You're a different person. Okay, last question. If you had to give a TED Talk on nothing that you're known for or nothing that you speak about, and it could be on anything, anything that you have a passion for or anything else at all, what would it be? It would be something on health and nutrition. I'm super passionate about health and nutrition and taking care of our bodies. And I mean, it's a little bit, it's not definitely not what I'm known for, but I totally geek out on all that kind of stuff. So I'd probably come up with some kind of like health hack talk to do. I absolutely love this. This is one of those interviews that I've done where I can't fully process all of it right now, but I know my unconscious is processing. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to thank you. I just want to thank you sincerely. Uh, It's been a pleasure getting to know you here. Do you have any final words or suggestions or an ask for the people that are listening? My ask would be to really listen to your own inner dialogue and really think about how you're talking to yourself because you know there's an inner child in all of us and one of our jobs as grown-ups is to be the parent to ourselves that we wish we would have had you know our parents all did the best they could even if you think no my parents could have done better they they honestly did the best they could and we have to forgive them and really become that inner parent to ourselves and give ourselves give ourselves the things that we want from others. And the more we do that, the more of what we want will actually come into our life. That was beautiful. And that is a perfect way to end this. Christine, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.